Father, we thank you so much for this day where we're able to come here to study your teaching, your word, the things that you want us to know as Christians, as believers in Christ in this age. I ask that you help us to understand the things which you gave to Israel back in the day and that you give us unique understanding through the power of your Holy Spirit into these things that we're reading in your word. I ask that you be with us and I ask that you continue to protect everyone that's on their way to Sunday service. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are studying the rapture of the church. We've been doing this for quite a while, um, probably around 47 or 48 weeks so far. Um, Like any study, this seems to be the history of just about every study we've done that's been somewhat topical in this church. Um, We don't like to just give our own viewpoint without interacting with alternative viewpoints, Um, because the goal ultimately, Lord willing, is some sort of unity within the church. That's very difficult when you have people of a dispensational background, which is the camp we hail from. You have people from the Reform camp, from the Covenant Theology camp, from just a normal traditional Calvinistic camp, Arminianism. You have people from a Methodist, whatever the case may be. You have a lot of different people from a lot of different viewpoints that if they trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation and the efficacious nature of his sacrifice on the cross as their substitute, they're all part of the church, whether they agree with us on the rapture or not. However, there are going to be people that disagree with our position, which is what we've, trying, what we've been trying to investigate. Now, one of the core tenets, we'll call it this way, of what we believe, which is a pre-tribulational rapture of the church, is this subject of eminence, which is what we've been looking at so far. Now, we've gotten pretty far in the weeds, so I'm trying to put this a little bit back into perspective. So, in general, eminence, the definition of eminence, to those of you who might have been curious this morning, is that we believe that Jesus Christ can come back to rescue his church at any moment. We believe that there are no events that have to take place in order for this to happen. That's where we get this idea of eminence. And if you read Walverd, he'll give the idea, he calls it eminency. Um, because if you're the president of a seminary and you've been teaching for 40 years, you can make up words and people go along with it. And nobody questions that. So that's why we kind of use those interchangeably in the texts. Though it would be nice to assume that people would agree with us, this is highly contentious. And we see that in our slide of general arguments. So that's largely what we've been doing for the last 16 or 17 weeks, has been going into the objections that people have to the idea of eminence. We looked at ones such as the the words watching and waiting, awaiting the coming of the Lord. All of these words in the New Testament don't necessarily... Uh, speak to improve eminence on their own. And we agreed that's actually good observation from an opposing viewpoint. And we use that to refine what we believe because the goal ultimately is to be as scriptural as possible. Part of that is accomplished by being as precise as possible when it comes to our wording. So in large measure, this isn't just a study to learn what the rapture of the church is. This is also a study to refine how we biblically support that doctrine because there's been a lot of sloppy 
I, I shouldn't say it that way. Um, sloppy exegesis is what I would refer to it as, where people use passages that don't support the rapture to support the rapture. Once you do that, and somebody who knows anything about that passage who doesn't agree with you sees that, it's a good way to undermine your own position. So we're trying to be as precise as possible with our wording. That's why, though these are very popular in dispensationalism today, we did things like believing Second Thessalonians 2 verse 3 is not talking about the rapture. We did things like saying Matthew 24 is not talking about the rapture. There are people that would roll over in their graves if they heard us doing that. But the reason we do that is because our goal is not just to push our viewpoint on people. It's to show why we believe that viewpoint is biblical. So that's large. Big explanation, but that's what we're trying to do. Of the arguments that we've looked at, the main one we're looking at today is, again, this somewhat passive-aggressive argument, which is that, well, God isn't going to exempt the church from something Israel and the rest of the world have to go through. Israel was sinful. Yeah, we get why they're going to be there, but the church is sinful too. So why shouldn't they also take part in this, right? You could encompass what I just said in parentheses and assign that to many people because that is actually a common objection. Now, really quick, just as review, I want to look at the building blocks of this argument. Now, this is more of a reformed argument, if you're familiar with the reformed movement. A lot of good things come from the reform movement, but there are also a lot of things we disagree with. They're very good when it comes to apologetics. We're not very fond of their uh, exegesis of Things like Romans 9 through 11. (laughs) So in any case, this is their basic argument, which is that, and I don't agree with anything on this screen for the most part. There are some things that obviously we're going to agree with, but this is their argument. Israel is known in the Old Testament as the people of God. The church is known as the bride of Christ and necessarily are also the people of God in the New Testament. Israel was promised judgment and punishment for her sins when she fell short of the Mosaic Covenant, and she has been promised a future participation in the time of Jacob's trouble in the eschatological wrath of God. The church is promised judgment for her sins in the leverage to the seven churches, specifically because she has fallen short of the law of Christ, and the church is elsewhere told to expect tribulation and trials, which would make her eligible for this time as well. Because the church is sinful, just as national or national Israel has been in the past, why would we assume an exemption from the wrath of God on the basis of passages which are contested? And they give you a couple verses. So they say, therefore, the church will also be in the tribulational period. Now, if you go deep into their study, they, they do, uh, they transpose this idea of oneness in the encompassed umbrella of the people of God where if you are a member of the church or you were a member of Israel, you're always the people of God. So they, they kind of do a switching movement where they say, well, because the church is the people of God, the church was also in the old Testament. And they'll, they'll use things like the usage of uh, gathering by Stephen in his speech in Acts chapter seven, I believe, and try to use that to show why the church it, We're not getting into that today, but what I'm getting at is this is the basic framework for their argument against our position. So we essentially have three different stages of answering this objection because it's really easy to objection or to answer quickly, but our goal is to be as thorough 
as thorough as possible without getting too far in the weeds. So the first step is to define Israel and define what Israel uh, is going to be doing in the tribulational period, what their promises are, have they been promised to be in the trib? What purpose would it serve for them to be in the tribulational period? Among other things, the, the next step would be to define the church, define her history. What have her promises been in this tribulational period or in regard to that time period? And then the next two steps would be to ask the question, are there any differences between the church and Israel? And then finally, not bringing a bunch of theology into it, looking at all the facts, make a biblical argument for what we think is going to end up happening and why, again, spoiler alert, the church is not going to be in the tribulational period, which would make this suddenly not an argument against eminence, which is why we're looking at it. Because if you can argue that the church is in the trib, the idea of eminence is gone. There is no argument for eminence. Um, because if the church is in the tribulational period, you know that the rapture can't happen before the trip starts. So, and that would be the, uh, that would be the main position of the post-tribulational rapture perspective, the uh, pre-wrath rapturism, the mid-trib. Um, some weird, and again, weird is a bad way to put it, but some variations of the partial rapture perspective. Um, they have several different versions of that too. So in any case... How do we define who Israel is? Well, there are a lot of ways to do that. But what we've been doing is we've been looking at the covenants because they are a covenant nation. So we looked at the, the nature of the idea of unconditional covenants. And within those unconditional covenants, we separated them into two classes. So for the most part, or I should, covenants we separated into two classes. The first was the Abrahamic covenant, which was the promise of land, seed, and blessing to not just Abraham, but also his descendants and the blessing promise in Genesis 12 verses two through three also expands to the whole world. So if you were to look at it, the Abrahamic covenant, the promises to Abraham by God would be the base. That would be the, uh, the tree of blessing uh, or the olive tree talked about in Romans 11. It's this idea of the blessing taking place in God's blessing. Moving forward, we also looked at those land, seed, and blessing promises, which we looked at in summarized form. We looked at them in a little bit more detail. We saw not only that they were promised that they were going to happen, which was a recapitulation of what was said in the Abrahamic covenant, but also we were taught about the condition of the world, and more specifically, the nation Israel, that would also go along with these promises and what would be happening. We saw that they would be regenerated, the nation of Israel, before the land covenant was actually fulfilled. We saw in the Davidic covenant that not only is it going to be an innumerable amount of seed coming from Abraham's line, but not just from Abraham, but from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there would be a specific seed, this Messiah, which would come from his line, who would rule forever in the kingdom. Again, showing us the condition of the world that would accompany the promises being fulfilled. We see that won't happen until the kingdom. Next, we see the new covenant, which gives us even more information, even more information about this blessing. Um, and so there are different aspects of each one of these covenants that kind of intertwine with the other ones, because it's a tremendous blessing that the God of the universe died on a cross as a substitute for our sins. 
And he was part of the seed blessing on a technical basis, though his reigning won't be fulfilled until the kingdom. So we get to see a lot of these parts of these unconditional covenants promised to Israel. People criticize us calling them unconditional because of the intrinsic conditions within them, but they're not, they're unconditional in the fact that God unconditionally promised these things to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're conditional in the fact that their fulfillment has certain, we'll call it environmental conditions attached to it. Like you cannot have a kingdom until you have a people back in the land in order to rule. You cannot have a land until you are back in the land that's been promised to you. And you could do example after example. So that's basically who Israel was. But as we looked at last week, they also had a conditional covenant, which was the idea of the Mosaic covenant or the, the law, the Mosaic law, which was not just a covenant of I'm going to do this for you. It was if you do this, then this will happen for you. If you do this, this will happen to you. Again, it gives quite a bit of rules. It gives them uh, descriptions of how they're supposed to live, how they're supposed to interact with other people, what the purpose of the country actually is. And we looked at all of those things last week. So this week, all of that 15-minute introduction, we'll call it a review, in mind, we're going to be looking at the election of Israel. So we looked at kind of what their structure was, kind of what their laws were, the Mosaic law, which is more of a constitution for their entire nation. But now we're going to take a broad stroke approach to that, and we're going to look at exactly why they even existed. And so that's what we're going to be working on today. So if you could turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19, that's where we're going to begin today. So Exodus 19, starting in verse 6, it says, and we'll actually, we'll start on verse 5. Now then, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. He can, because again, the uh, Jewishness of all of these things is very, very, very significant, which we could get to at a later date. Um, but again, this is basically pushing the point that this is the elect nation of God, meaning that they were chosen by God specifically for a purpose. Now we could say that, but ultimately we need to determine what that purpose was we don't get to decide that. We have to look at what the Bible says. So if you turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4, um, starting in verse 37. I'll give you a second to get there. Um, it says, because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is today. It says in later on in this book in chapter seven, starting in verse six, all the way to verse eight, for you are a holy people to the Lord, your God, the Lord, your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are in the face of the earth. 
The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Because again, the, the point that we're trying to make is God was creating a counterculture to all the other cultures in the area where there were nations of idolatry, where there were nations that were going against God's rules. I mean, it was understood that God gave a specific amount of rules, the, the Noahic covenant, the fact that if you shed man's blood, your blood is going to be shed. And there were basic things that God gave them via conscience that they understood. God was moving away from the idolatry and the murderous nature of all of those other nations and creating a counter nation. So he was choosing them, not because of anything they had that was greater. They, they weren't the prime subject for it. In fact, there's an argument to be made that they were the, quite the opposite. Because again, it was within the weakness of the nation that the strength of God was shown. So the next point we're going to be reading is back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting in verse 5 through 8. It says, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So then keep and do them. For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law, which I am setting before you today? Because again, they were... They were given the law. They were given these things to guide them as a nation. And what's more is if you move to Deuteronomy chapter six, I know we're hopping around a lot. Um, and I, I'm not sorry about it. How often do you go into Deuteronomy? <laughs> so in any case, it says, starting in verse six of chapter six, these words, which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so we'll finalize that by hopping around even more and going to Romans chapter 3 verses 1 through 2. Um... Because if you're ever studying the law, you'll probably accompany whatever study you have with the books of Hebrews, Romans, and Galatians pretty heavily. And so it says in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 1, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Because again, these are the things that Israel was given. This is different from every other nation. God did not do this with any other nation. God gave them his law. God gave them a special position separated from the other countries around them. As we looked in last week, he gave them specific dietary laws that would separate them. We see that really well in the beginning of the book of Daniel, where Daniel made the choice to only eat the foods, or I'm sorry, he made the 
he made the case to negotiate with the guard to only eat foods that were available to him via the law. You'll notice he didn't have any objection to them changing his name, although that was clearly not great because there was no existing part of the Mosaic law that that was violating. But he did have an issue with eating the food of the king because that violated a significant portion of the Mosaic law. So in any case, that is what they were given and they were separated and it showed a distinction between them and Babylon, two nations, Um, because ultimately the goal is to be separated and to carry the biblical principles that God has given them to actually make a case for a distinction. And these are basically the four things that they were told to do. And these are very general purposes. There are smaller micro purposes in this too, but so far they were an elect nation of God, which means they were separated for a particular reason. They were also given the oracles of God. They were given the revelation of God to record. We see that basically just in the fact that we have the Old Testament in general. And the next point is that they were to propagate the doctrine of the one true God. We see that in the book of Isaiah. If you could turn there to chapter 43. So Isaiah 43, starting in verse 10 through 12. It says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there is no strange God among you. So you... Again, the you is important here, are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity, I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? Because again, this is what the Jews were to do. They were to propagate who God was to the other nations. That's why God put them in that particular part of land where all the other nations had to go through to get to It's like Indiana. You go through Indiana to get to other states. Nobody goes to Indiana for fun. I say that looking at the people who lived in Indiana. Um, But it's, it's similar where they were going through Israel to get to other countries because the goal was for them to witness to those people. Those people were, it was very convenient for the Jews. These people were coming to Israel, seeing the temple, which was literally made with Holy Spirit infused hands. Because again, they were given special abilities beyond what they would normally be able to do in order to build the temple. Um, We see that in the Solomonic temple as well as the one that they made later. Finally, Israel was to produce the Messiah. We see that actually best in Romans chapter 9, if you could turn there. Romans 9 verse 5 is what we're going to be reading. It says, we'll start in verse 4. Yeah, we'll start in verse one. We'll go to verse five. I am not lying. My con- I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption of sons, the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and all the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh who is over all God, blessed forever. 
Amen. If you could turn to Hebrews chapter 2, that'll be the next one we look at. It says, starting in verse 16 to the end of the chapter, For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. It says later in the book of Hebrews, starting in chapter 7, starting in verse 13, it says, For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descendant from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Because again, they were and did produce the Messiah. Not again, not because of anything they did, but because of what God did through them as a nation. Because again, they were separated for service. They were separated for a particular purpose. To finally understand who Israel is going to be in the past or was in the past and is going to be in the future, we have to understand three different subjects. So we have to look at their failure to do that, which God asked them to do. We have to look at their judgment for that particular sin. And then we have to look at their restoration because all three of those subjects separately are talked about in this particular subject. That gives us a good idea of why they are not only have to be, but why they as a nation, national Israel is going to be in the trib. So the first step is to bounce back all the way to the book of Exodus. And we're going to start back in chapter 19 that we were looking at starting in verse three. So it says, starting in verse three, Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountains saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words, which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So Moses was kind of an, uh, mediating between the nation of Israel and God, but more specifically, they promised what they promised all that the Lord has spoken. We will do. That's the promise that they made. Did they, <laughs> we know from history, they did not live up to that end of that covenant. And that being said, this failure resulted in God's corrective judgment upon them as a nation in response to that disobedience, both the disobedience of that generation, which is significant if you look at history, but also the subsequent generations. 
Um, this is not just to bash Israel. We'll get to the good stuff later. Um, so, but in any case, in response to that disobedience, they as a nation were to be cursed. So we see that best in the book of Leviticus. So if you could go to Leviticus, starting in chapter 26, we're going to read some of this. We're not going to read all of it. There's, there's quite a bit of material here. So starting in chapter 26, starting in verse 14. What you'll notice, which is very interesting, <laughs> if you're, if you're inter- interested in proportions, is that verses 1 through 13 are giving them blessings for obedience. <laughs> A very much larger portion, starting in verse 14, going all the way until 46, are curses for disobedience. Curses we, we use the word curse. It basically just means a judgment or a disciplinary action, if you will. Um, it doesn't mean like a curse, like a, anyway. Uh, so we'll start in verse 14. We're going to read it because I think it's kind of insightful as far as their history is concerned. You'll see there's quite a bit more to read. So it says, starting in verse 14, but if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead... You reject my statues, and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, again, to not obey God's commandments is to break his covenant because the law, as we see elsewhere, is an entire unit where if you failed in one area, you failed it in its entirety. It was a package deal, and they knew that from the beginning of the law. It's not something we just learned in the book of James. So it says in verse 16, I in response to this, in turn, will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption, and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, you will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up, and I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies. And those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. If also after these things, you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will also break down your pride of power and I will make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. Your strength will be spent uselessly for your land will not yield this produce and the trees of the land will not yield their fruit. If then when you act with hostility against me and are are willing to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. And I will let loose among you beasts of the field who will bereave you of your children and destroy your cattle and reduce your number so that your roads lie deserted. And if by these things you are not turned to me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with hostility against you. And I, even I, will strike you seven times for your sins, and I will bring you a sword which will execute vengeance for the covenant. Because again, this is, this is not just to punish them. This is to correct them. Because it's if then you don't work, move forward. If then you're still not submitting to me and repenting. And he continues on with that path. Because again, the goal is not just to beat them into the ground. The goal, it's similar to disciplining a child. The goal is to initiate a response on behalf of the person that's in violation of the covenant so that they come back. And that is, as much as people like to speak in generalities about the book of Leviticus, it's, it's very loving. It sounds bad, but it's very loving how he's choosing to do this to the nation. I just, uh, interjection is necessary (laughs) because it's, it's a lot of information. Um, 
Because again, starting in verse 24 again, it says, Then I will act with hostility against you, and I, even I, will strike you seven times for your sins. I will also bring upon you a sword which will execute vengeance for the covenant. And when you gather together in your cities, I will send pestilence among you, so you shall be delivered into enemy hands. And when I break your staff of bread, ten women will bake your bread in one oven, and they will bring back your bread in rationed amounts, so that you will eat and not be satisfied. Yet, if in spite of this you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you, and I, even I, punish you seven times for your sins. Further, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you will eat. And then I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and heap your remains on the remains of your idols. For my soul shall abhor you. And I will lay waste to your cities as well. And I will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will smell, I will not smell your soothing aromas. I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. You, however, I will scatter, this is important, among the nations and will draw out a sword after you and your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation while you are in your enemy's land. And then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths all of the days in its desolation. It will observe the rest, which it did not observe on your Sabbaths while you were living on them. As for those of you who may be left. I will also bring weakness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies and the sound of a driven leaf will chase them. And even when no one is pursuing, they will flee as though from the sword and they will fall. They will therefore stumble over each other as if running from the sword, although no one is pursuing and you will have no strength to stand up before your enemies, but you will perish among the nations and your enemies land will consume you. So those of you who may be left will rot away because of their iniquity in the lands of your enemies. And also because of the iniquities of their forefathers, they will rot away with them. And if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled, so then, so they then make amends for their iniquity. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well. And I will remember the land for the land will be abandoned by them and will make up for its Sabbath while it is made desolate without them. They meanwhile will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statues. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them. For I am the Lord, their God. But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and ordinances and laws which the Lord established between himself and the sons of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. That's a mouthful. There's a lot going on there. But the biggest thing to notice is that this is the framework they were given. Now, we didn't even read the, the first 13 verses because they didn't actually come into play all that much in their history. Um, in fact, this is actually a very good summary of the history of the Jews up until the moment of them coming back from Babylonian captivity. But what you'll notice is that, again, it's 
an if-then statement followed by an if-then statement. This is a judgment. If this judgment doesn't work, you'll get this judgment. And if you're you, not God, if you, Israel, are still in rebellion, then this judgment seven times over and it repeats itself. Because again, the goal is not just to punish them and beat them into the ground. Even in the midst of some of the terrible things they were doing. I mean, you saw the reference to eating their children. You can learn a lot about that in history, looking at Ezekiel in the time that he was living in. But in any case, that is the framework that we have. Um, and this is the result of their disobedience. On that cheerful note, uh, we will move to Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 43 through 44. It says, again, Deuteronomy chapter 28, starting in verse 43. It says, the alien who is among you shall rise above you higher and higher, but you will go down lower and lower and he shall lend to you, but you will not lend to him and he shall be the head and you shall be the tail. Again, this being a stark opposite of what was originally supposed to be available to them. If you move forward in that chapter, starting in verse 63, it says, it shall come about. That as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and to multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you, and you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, and you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you and your forefathers, or which you or your fathers have not known. Among those nations, you shall find no rest and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of the eyes and despair of the soul. So your life shall be hang in doubt before you, and you shall be in the dread night and day and shall have no assurance of your life. This is terrible, but this is a response to their iniquity. This is a corrective measure. Um, and you can see how that was fulfilled uh, looking at... The past. We'll look at that chapter from Luke, and then that'll be what we end with today. So if you turn to the book of Luke, starting in verse 21, that's where we're going to finish today. So it says, starting in verse 20, oh, where'd it go? But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are the days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days and who will be in great distress upon the land and wrath of this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. This is yet another example in the future, well in the future from what we were just reading in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, of another fulfillment of this corrective blessings and cursings measure Moving forward. Now, you'll see that all of these things to be said, this is a response to Israel's failure as a nation. And again, just so we're aware, we'll, we'll look at this next week. We do still have an additional portion of that 
where they failed, where they rejected the king of God's own choosing, which was Jesus, the Messiah. But you'll notice is that that was just the response to failure. That's not even talking about the judgment of this nation. But just as it's incredibly disheartening to look at the judgment and the iniquity and all of the things of this particular nation to understand its history, there's also an entire section of their restoration and significant promises of them being restored to the land, being regenerated as a nation, national regeneration that we looked at in the new covenant. So we'll be looking at that a little bit next week. Hopefully if we make it that far, um, taking 15 minutes to read a chapter in Leviticus is why we didn't make it that far today. But in any case, I think it's really useful for us to understand who they are as a people, because it's that background, that cyclical relationship they have with their own disobedience. That's going to explain why they have to be in the tribulational period. And it's going to explain what specific purpose their inclusion in that time period is going to do and going to fulfill. And Because again, the goal is for them to come back to the Lord. And as we're going to be looking at next week, sadly, the way that we know that's going to happen per prophecy is it's going to happen through two thirds of them dying. So again, this is really, it says a lot that Kurt's going to have the fun lesson when he teaches in Revelation. That's usually not going to be true. Um, That's usually not the fun lesson, but It is disheartening to look at this, but remember, there's also a complete other side of redemption. The smallest, if we're looking at this from an eternal perspective, the smallest portion of of world history is the time prior to the kingdom. That is the smallest portion of world history in the existence of all humanity. That is the smallest, tiniest portion. So though we've been seeing a lot of Israel's failure, her judgment for her failures, there is an entire side of her regeneration that's going to outlast that small portion of disobedience by a tremendous amount. So though it seems really bad from us in the dispensation that we're in right now, in this time period, this age, but this is just a blip on the radar of the time period that God has. So we'll look at that a little bit in the weeks to come. So let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the promises Um, We also thank you for the good and bad examples of your covenant nation, Israel. It gives us a good picture of the things you like, the things you abhor. It gives us uh, a look at you, your sovereignty, but also your your grace, uh, which is evident in their continued existence. The fact that they exist because of your covenant that you made with them, that you made with the earth, and the promises of the kingdom, which are going to be brought through Israel, and through the tribulational period, it's just a picture of who you are. The fact that you don't lie, the fact that you know the end from the beginning and the fact that you are who you say you are. So Lord, we're grateful for that. And we're also grateful for salvation that you brought through these people, the Jews, as we looked at the fact that you died on a cross as a substitute for our sins, that though the weight of our sins is heavy, it was not a load that you couldn't bear. And you bore that for us. And that's something that I will incredibly I'm incredibly grateful for that. So Lord, I thank you for that. I ask that you be with us in the service to come and the potluck that's going to be following. And I thank you for this opportunity to be together as a church. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.